hope is in your righteousness in forgiving sinners based on the work that you sent your son to do and is now applied to our hearts by the Holy Spirit. And for this Spirit, we pray that that same Spirit that inspired the words that we consider this evening would give us clarity of thought, that, that your Spirit would set in abeyance those things that would rush in to try to fill this moment. Pray that your Spirit would keep those things, our anxieties and our concerns, even our hopes and our dreams and our anticipations at bay so that we might have a clear hearing and understanding of your word, which will then give us new perspectives on those things that we uh, are so anxious about even now. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, so we, um, we're in the, the book of Romans. That is where we are. And we, uh, the book of Romans is Paul's, um, it, it's, a, it's a sermon, it's a theology, and it's about what? The gospel. Okay. And as we've noted, the gospel can be contained in a single verse, such as John 3.16, or expand out to 16 chapters, or even beyond to the 66 books of the Bible. Um, so that's what uh, the book of Romans really is. It's, it's that. And in this, this gospel, the whole argument really of the book starts with an old question. And an old question is about the righteousness of God in light of wickedness. This is from Habakkuk. Habakkuk asks a question. Wait a minute. God, your eyes are too pure to look on evil. Why do you look with favor on the wicked? So Paul brings that old argument into the new context of the gospel. And he addresses two issues in, with this, in, in the gospel, in the book of Romans. And that is the righteousness of God in the judgment of all men. And the righteousness of God in the salvation of men. Righteousness of God is getting questioned from two different perspectives. One perspective is, God, you don't look like you're that good because you're letting bad people get away with things. God says, I got that under control. And the other side of it is that, God, you don't look that righteous because you are forgiving people of sins. He says, I got that under control. So that's kind of the, kind of the heart of this argument we find in um, in Romans. And then we, we've talked about the fact that this really can be broke out into really kind of three broad, you know, broad, there are, there's other information there, broad perspectives, broad subjects. The first one is condemnation. Okay? Condemnation. The second section, justification. And the last one, sanctification. 
And then in this, under this condemnation here, we started out in chapter 1, verses 18, all the way to chapter 2. And just for a handle, that's talking about who? Popularly, we call them pagans. It's everybody who lives like we don't live, right? It's all the bad people out there. Okay. The heathens, yes, the heathens, the, the pagans. And I know about them because I come from 100% pure USDA certified pagan stock. <laughs> I've got the stamp of approval. Uh, so it's really it's talking about the pagans. And, and, and this is in the condemnation. Now the section that we're going to begin talking about tonight really is dealing with... There's, there's two more groups. One is what we're going to call the moralist. The moral people. Okay? They, they are, quote, good people. But now notice where they are. They're still under that heading of condemned. And then the, the last group that we will talk about and we'll, next week would be the, the Jewish people particularly that end up getting singled out as part of the argument. Now, <clears throat> this is really... The, so the, to kind of position ourselves within this argument, um, these are the non-religious people. Okay? And these are just kind of the, the good people, the moral people. And then these would be representative of religious people. And before this section, this first section of Romans is over with, what is Paul going to say about all three of them? That's right. They're all. In fact, Paul will say, and this is very important because this, this, this section of Scripture that we're going to be looking at, chapter 2, 1 through 16, is something of a debate that is taking place before us. And it's very easy, if we're not careful, to get kind of entangled in the debate. Um, and uh, one of the ways to make sure that you don't end up entangled in the debate, because there's a couple of ways you can kind of get off on some sidebars, is to remember the trajectory of Paul's argument. And that really can be found in a couple of places, but, but at the end of the section in Romans chapter 3 and verse 19. Somebody, somebody read that, 319. This is kind of the trajectory of his whole argument from 118 to that point. What is it? Someone read it. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Who, how, how big is this argument? The whole, the whole world. The whole world. So when you, when you look up here, and, or, and we're look, walking through this text, and you say, well, you know, that really, that, the pagans, I'm, I'm really, you know, I'm not a, a pagan, and, or, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good guy. I mean, I know I do some things, you know, or I'm really a religious person. You need to understand at the end of the day, end of his argument, he says, 
You're all guilty. The whole world is accountable to God. So chapter 118 through 321 is kind of like going through the mines of Moria. Yeah, the Belrog. He's gonna if if the goblins and the and and the these creatures don't get you, the Belrog's gonna get you before you get out. But it's just it's a it's a it's a scene in the in the Lord of the Rings where these travelers have to traverse through a tunnel on the mountain and it gets and and there's no hope. And and that's kind of what happens. You're not going to you do not survive Romans 1.18 through 3.19. Nobody does. At the end of it, we're all slain because it's real dark. Uh, um, has anybody ever uh, done some spelunking? I did it in, in, in Belize. Have you ever gotten way up, in, way deep down in a cave? And that's what spelunking is, is going into caves. You get, you get as far... In the cave as you can get, and you turn the light out. What? Yes. <laughs> I told you I'm certified. Okay? It's dark. It is very dark. There is no light. That's kind of what's going on in this section of Romans. It is. It is very foolish. I realized that when I fell into the river in the dark. Because I didn't know what was... Anyway, alright, we got to get on track. Okay, so what we're going we're to talk about tonight is um, we're going to handle this section of Romans, which is Romans 2, 1 through 16, from two different perspectives. The first perspective is we're going to kind of look at the form of the debate. That, that this takes. And then we're going to look at the truths that are debated. All right? Now, we're only going to spend a little bit of time on the form of the debate uh, because I want to spend a whole lot of time on the truth of the debate. And the reason I want to spend a whole lot of time on the truth of the debate is because I believe that that will equip us for evangelism, for being able to take the message of the gospel to those who are still in the minds of condemnation. All right? So, so what happens is in 118 through 32, Paul systematically goes through and he says, these people are guilty, these people are guilty, these people are guilty, these people are guilty, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on. And what happens is Paul then introduces in chapter 2 a hypothetical opponent. It's this moral character. He introduces him into the text by allowing him to say something. And what, does, what is it that he allows him to say? Well, notice he, he addresses him, verse 1, Therefore, you are without excuse. Who is without excuse? Every man of you who passes judgment. Now what's happened, remember there's this, this whole list of incredible sins that have been stated. Somebody is standing by 
And as they listen to everything that Paul says, they make the fatal mistake of going, Amen. Amen. Those are a bunch of scoundrels, and they deserve the punishment of God. And Paul says, what did you say? Well, I said, amen. I, I agree with you, Paul. I agree with you that they deserve God's justice, God's judgment. Then notice what Paul says. Well, hang on. Hold your amen for just a moment. Because notice in verse 1, For in that you judge another, you condemn yourself. By the fact that you said amen to what he just said indicates that you yourself are in agreement with the condemnation that those who commit such things are guilty. Well, yeah, that's what I said, Paul. Notice the last part of verse 1. For you who judge practice the same things. Well, now you, now you can imagine, here's the objection. Whoa, 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 wait a minute. Wait a minute. I'm not an idolater. I don't have a little idol in my house. What are you talking about? I'm not, I'm not one that's guilty of some of these things that are listed here. How is it that I am guilty because I'm a moral person. I'm respected in the community. So now here's we have to we have to do a little bit of work. Because here's what he says in verse 2. And we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And do you suppose this, O oh man, when you pass judgment upon those who practice such things, and do the same yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? <clears throat> so how do you answer that? How do, you, how do you answer? They say, well, wait a minute. I they are guilty. I'm not. And Paul's saying, yes, you are, because you're doing the exact same things that they're doing. Now, does, any, does anybody have any text that comes to mind that might help us out, that we might come and help Paul out on his point? Okay. Okay. How is it that these moral people are doing the same things that the pagans are doing? And think of Jesus. Think about Jesus' Sermon on the Mount. What does he say? He says, you have heard that it was said that you shall not commit adultery. But if you look on a woman with lust in your heart, guess what? You're guilty. You're already guilty. Condemned. In fact, later on, we won't look at it, but that very point will come up when he talks about, when he talks to the Jews, to the religious people. He says, you're doing, the, you're doing this. The assumption, that, now the assumption is that Paul is correct. Okay? He's, he's correct. In his, in his statement. You moral people, you're guilty. Now, the moralist then posts kind of an argument. He says, but wait a minute. My life is pretty good right now. 
I mean, all of these people have diseases and they have their families are broken and their their homes are destroyed. And I mean, look at me. I mean, I've got a good job. I'm well respected in the community. I give to charities. Surely God is pleased with me. Well, that's not Paul's perspective. And that's what he says to that argument in verse 4. He says, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? Why do you have a good job? Why do you have standing in the community? Why do you have the resources that you do? What God is doing is God is giving you space to repent. Giving you space to repent of, notice what the text says, of your stubborn and unrepentant heart. And what you're doing is you're storing up wrath for yourself in the day of wrath and revelation and the righteous judgment of God. And what we've seen thus far is in the first part of Romans, 118 through chapter 2, is the, this passive wrath of God, which is on display in these people's lives. Now what they're talking about is you're talking about this future wrath of God that's going to be very active. He says, so you're making a wrong presumption about why you have it well right now, about why things are going well for you. It's not because you're a good person. It's because God is a good God and who's patient with you and giving you space to repent. What Paul then does is he, then he turns his, in verses 6 through 10, is he turns his attention to the outcome of that judgment. So here's what's going to happen. This is kind of a challenge that he throws up, and he says, what, he says here's what's going to happen in this day of judgment. He says, verse 6, he says that God will render to every man according to his deeds. Okay, all right. So you think you're good, you think you're moral, you think all this, okay, all right. Then here, here's, here's, here's what you got going for you, or here's what your possibilities are. He says, verse 7, to those who by perseverance in doing good, okay, so those who do good and who seek for glory and honor, immortality, eternal life. Okay? That is paralleled in verse 10. But glory and honor and peace to every man who does good, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Alright, so you want to take your morality to the tribunal of God. Well, if you really are good, and you really didn't meet the standards, then this is what you can look forward to. You will be rewarded. He said, but now for those who do not obey the truth, verse 8, there is unrighteous, and, but obey unrighteousness, wrath and indignation. There will be tribulation and distress for every soul of man who does evil of the Jew first and also of the Greek. Now, so he says, you think you're good. Are, are you willing to take that goodness and stand before the tribunal of God and bank 
your eternal outcome on your goodness. Now, we already know, if you look in 3.12, that Paul does not think that's a good idea. Because look in Romans 3.12. This is where he's summarizing his, he's arriving his, his trajectory. He says, all have turned aside together. They have become useless. How many are good? Not even one. Not even one. It's not advisable to stand before the tribunal of God banking on your goodness and your morality. Paul will tell you that is, that is a very unwise thing to do. What he then does is he then makes a statement about in verse 11 that there is no partiality with God. He says the, in verse 12, the presence or the absence of the law is not going to be grounds for justification. Actually, it's grounds for condemnation. And then, what are, the last thing I want to call your attention to is we look at the form of the argument. Is He ends up this section by telling us, not only does, is God going, at his tribunal going to judge the works of men, Okay, but look at the last one of the last phrases in verse 16 what else is he going to judge the secrets of men that's that's not uh, that's not a good place to be alright so that's basically the form that's kind of the contours of this text and the way he argues and then next and then next week we'll see how he then begins to argue with the, the kind of the religious person. Now, what I want to do now is I want to step out of the, the form, the contour, and I want to look back at this section and look at the elements that are contained within this. And I'm sorry, I don't have this. I know this is uncouth, but... We're going to look at the, the, the elements that are contained in this debate that Paul invites us into, right? So we've already hit on the first one, okay? Now, how, how, let, me, let me explain to you how I think this is going to be useful or how I would hope this would be useful in evangelism, okay? All right? Now, remember, Paul, who, who is Romans written to? Christians in Rome, okay, right? And we've already seen how they need the gospel, right? So they can't have a fuller understanding of the gospel. But what kind of Christians were the Roman Christians according to verse 1? What was one of the things that Paul gave thanks about the Roman Christians for? Because they were evangelistic, because they were, their faith was spread abroad. Well, anytime you spread your faith abroad, guess what you're going to encounter? You're going to encounter moral people who are going to argue with you about whether or not they need the gospel. Okay? And so that's the form of evangelism that I'm focusing on and I'm trying to address right now by considering the things that Paul said here. And we know 
that Paul used the concept of judgment in his presentations of the gospel. Let me show you. Let me show you. Somebody turn over to Acts chapter 24, verse 25. This is an incredible statement. I find it incredible. It's a, a description of Paul's presenting the gospel. I believe it's to Felix. And notice the elements when it's read that are in his reasoning about the gospel. Go ahead. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, Don't wait for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. You see that? So Paul is reasoning with Felix about faith in Christ Jesus. And what are the three subjects in his gospel presentation? Righteousness. What's Romans about? Righteousness of God and our lack of self-control. Now that's an amazing. Throw that out in your next evangelistic effort. Hey, you know why you need the gospel? Because you have absolutely no self-control. But nonetheless, and, and guess who he's saying this to? A governor. That's not a good thing to say to governors. But, and then the third thing is what? Judgment. So, by looking at this text, I, what I really think this text is, is the form of what Paul was doing right there. I think this, if you, say, if you were doing, if we were studying through Acts and we came to that verse of Scripture, guess where I would take you? Back to this section of Romans. I said, this is probably what Paul is doing here. Okay? Alright, so, the first thing that I want to point out, because this is... I'm trying to equip us for evangelism specifically for moral people. Okay? So the first thing that we have to do is, we have, we've already noted this, is that moral people, okay? Moral people are guilty. Is that what Paul is saying here? He is saying they are guilty. They may be they may be relatively moral. And I, I promise you I would rather run into a Mormon, okay, than a gang member. Okay? Alright? But both of them are on the same playing field before God. There's no partiality. They're they're guilty. They are, they are guilty. So when, when, you're, when we are evangelizing and we're sharing the gospel with moral people, we need to understand. We need to believe the Word of God. It's not us passing judgment on them. This is a declaration from the Word of God. Moral people are guilty. They are guilty of sin. They need the gospel. And we'd be careful because we look at people and, and they look so put together and they look so clean and they wear nice clothes and they have nice jobs. They were right next to us, and this is a, this is a nice person. I mean, they play with their grandkids. You know what? They're guilty. They need the gospel. All right, all right. The second thing that I want to point out from this text that I think that is very helpful in terms of evangelizing moral people. Is that within it there is a description 
of the character of God. There's a statement in this text about the character of God. Tells us, in fact, it tells us three things about the character of God. You see them? It's when, it's when the moralist is kind of objecting that, hey, I don't look like I'm under judgment. What's the rebuttal? God is doing what? What does it say about God? Huh? God is patient. What else? God is kind. What else? Well, it's right there. It's right there in that group of words. Huh? He's forbearing. It's this last one that's really creating so much trouble in this argument in Romans, isn't it? Wasn't that what Habakkuk was upset with to start with? Habakkuk was upset with God because he wasn't doing something about their sin. Jonah. What is, this, is, this is a startling statement. The one statement in the book of Jonah that really kind of gets, kind of makes the dangerous stand up. Not dandruff, but you know, mm-hmm. anyway. Remember what Jonah says? After he forgives people, that's, he said, that's exactly why I didn't want to come here. Because I knew you were going to do that. I knew you were the kind of God that if people repent, you will forgive their sins. And Jonah didn't want their sins forgiven. He wanted to see the wrath of God poured out on them. But what this text that we have is telling us so in this rebuttal against this moralist who says, I don't see the judgment of God in my life. He says, he said, let me tell you about the character of God here. God is patient. God is kind and he's forbearing. He's giving you the opportunity to repent. That's the kind of God that he is. We see so many people who, and, and they get so frustrated with God. They get so frustrated with circumstances in their life, and they look and they say, well, if there was a God, why doesn't He just strike those people dead? And we understand that frustration. I mean, we really do. We're no different than Habakkuk. Well, here's the answer. Because God is patient and kind and forbearing. Now, how is this kindness biblically Demonstrated. There's a couple of texts I've got in mind. How, how he got? He said he's kind to the the just and the unjust, the good and the bad. What, what does he do? He makes rainfall just and the unjust. He, right. He causes the rain. In that context, it seems a good thing. <clears throat> this is this is a this is this is counterintuitive, right? When we encounter bad people. It is not, we don't have the tendency to show grace. We think what's needed to change people is just snatch them up and just, you know, you see a kid, right? Kids acting out. And what's the first thing that we say? 
Well, that mama ought to take him, snatch him up, and just wear his hind end out. Maybe so. But what about grace? What about a gracious response? God, he is he's being kind. He's being gracious. Because what does that do? It leads people to repentance. There is a place for the statement of, ju- of judgment. We're right in the middle of it. That's what this is about. This is about the judgment. But right in the middle of that judgment, there is a statement about hope. There is hope in this. Because God is patient. He's kind. He's forbearing. And there's a reason, and we'll kind of cheat a little bit. We'll kind of run ahead. In chapter 3, in verse 24, we're going to be told what empowers the patience and forbearance of God. What's empowered that for the ages is the knowledge of Jesus on the cross. Because he knew that those sins would be paid for by Jesus. So there's a so moral people are guilty, but yet there is hope because of the character of God and because of God's work. Alright? Alright. Next thing is that God judges two, at least two things in men and women, according to our text. And what are those two things? Secrets is one of them. And what else? Their works. That's the two things he judges. God, according to 2.6, is going to judge the works of men. And then in 2.16, he is going to judge the secrets of men. And what I want to do is I want to kind of tie these two things together. All right. All right. So the works of men. Now, so we're we're, we're sharing Christ with someone, and they say, "Well, I'm basically a good person." You say, "Okay, well, then God will recognize that you're a good person." But let me ask you: In what ways are you good? How, how, tell me about your goodness. What are the good works that you think are going to stand up in the tribunal of God? Now, I mean, I now realize this is going to get. Now, this is you are in it, right? So, what are your good works, and how are you defining those? And for whom are those works being done? You remember, Jesus has given us some instruction on this, right? If you're going to throw a party, who do you invite to the party? Not the rich people. Your family, why? 
well, that's really not technically a good work. Why is that technically not a good work? That's it. You're just setting up the next, the next party invitation. So I, that's really not really kind of a good work. What does Jesus say? Invite who? The poor. The lame. Invite them to the party. And then you will have what? You'll have a reward. So let me ask you. Have you had a party where you've invited the poor and the lame? So when we're talking about biblical good works, remember we've got to judge these works within biblical categories. They're not just, not just man-made categories that we come up with. It's not just I feel good because I did something. The, 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 the Bible, these are kinds of judgments that God is going to make with respect to these issues. And the secrets. Now, according to the way this text is written, men have secrets. Men and women have secrets. And the way I'm reading the text, we all do. There's not anybody in here, there's not anybody on this planet that doesn't have a secret. And at the tribunal of God, those are going to be discussed. Now, the one secret that I want to bring out and try to talk about is one that's related back here to the good works. Because I want to ask the question, just between me and you, why did you do the good work? It's a secret. What's your motive in this? You know what? You know one of the prime reasons that I don't rob banks. Listen, I'm being dead honest with you. This is a. Do you know what one of the prime reasons that I don't rob banks? You know what it is? I don't want to go to jail. I really, really don't want to go to jail. Am I a good guy because I'm not robbing a bank? No, I'm just selfish. I mean, I really am. I don't want to go to jail. So why are you doing the things that you're doing? Is it really because you because you are pursuing, you're hungering, you're thirsting after righteousness? Is it because you see the objective truth and righteousness of God? You're seeking to live that out as a light among the nations? Or are you like this coward? I don't want to go to jail. I really don't. I don't cheat on income taxes. You know why? Not because I don't believe I should. They get enough money, they're taking more than they should. But you know why? Because I don't want the NSA coming looking for me. So I'm going to toe the line. Hey, how much should I make? Oh, done. I'm a coward. That's some of the secrets that we have. But when we're at the tribunal of God, God's going to say, I know why you did that. Let's talk about it. Now, you see, this is why we're talking about we dare not trust in the sweetest frame. Because that's not going to get you anywhere. We lean wholly on 
its name. So the, remember, we're, we're, ta- we're, ta- we're, we're encountering, we're trying to share the gospel with a moral person upstanding in the community, community and if we're going to biblically evangelize them, guess what we're going to have to tell them? You really are guilty. You really are guilty. I'm not sure you're as good as you think you are. At least you're not as good as God is judging you to be. When you talk about your works, let's talk about your secrets. Okay? Now, I guarantee you that's going to do one or two things at this point. We've got one more point to cover. I guarantee you it's going to do one or two things. By this point in the conversation, you can bet one or two things is taking place. What is it? Sorrow or sin to, like, Felix, tell Yep. Or, I don't know who you think you are. <laughs> you need to go ahead and leave. Because if I can be half the man my dad was, if I can be half the woman my grandmother was, I'm going to do okay. Me and God are, are doing okay. Me and Jesus, we got our own thing going. There was a song, wasn't there? Me and, does anybody know about you remember that song? We're not going to sing it. Me and Jesus got our own thing going. No, you don't. You really don't. You're just deceiving yourself. And God is good. This moment has occurred with the hope of your repentance. Now, here's, here's where I think the kicker is. And this is where we need to... We, we really, we get, we've got to be courageous. We've got to really believe the Bible. Okay? Alright? Because men instinctively Notice. Notice in verse 15. Romans 2, 15. Okay. He says, talking about these hypothetical Good people. Verse 14, for when Gentiles who do not have the law do instinctively the things of the law, these not having law are law to themselves, in that they show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness, their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. Now this is this is a place where we can get off into one of these debates. And I don't want to do that. I want to hone in on this. He says, basically, men have consciences and they know what you're telling them to be true. And, and that is what we've got to go for. We've got to go for that you know what, what is being said is true. Now, what I have, I've given you, I gave you a handout. This is, very, this is a very simple handout, okay? All right? And this is... It is And I think and I believe this proves the point of this text. That men instinctively know that. How does that do this? Well, 
number one, it, it shows you this that this is a little annotated. It's not because of the time, not because of the date on the New York Times is posted. In fact, it's a newspaper. It don't exist anymore. The way that we see this is because of the juxtaposition of this. We don't read National Geographic the same way we read the newspaper, do we? Right? Look, 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 look at the National Geographic. What's going on? I mean, the zebras are getting after it. They're, I mean, they are, they're, they're hammering each other. Now, does anybody at any moment go, you know what, that's morally not right? No, you don't. We look at that and we go, you know what, there is no, moral, there is no morality there. That's an all-moral situation. The one zebra is not going to be judged because he attacked the other zebra. The lion is not going to be judged because he attacked the gazelle. There's no morality in the animal. There's no morality in the animal kingdom. And we recognize that. Now, because when we read the National Geographic or we watch the Discovery Channel, we may get, you know, we may get a little nauseous because, oh, I mean, nobody wants to see a lion eat a gazelle. But you, you, you're, you, there's no moral outrage in you. But when you look at the, the newspaper, which is about the world of men, and you read articles about where a man, because he lost his job, and this is not on that storyline, this is just, okay. There's a man who had lost his job, lost his home, his kids were hungry, he was desperate, so he took a gun and he went into the bank to get money to feed his kids and in the process he shot and killed somebody what happens in your heart that's wrong you may have compassion for that guy for the way his life has turned out but you're going to say that man is guilty there's a difference between the world, the, the world of humans and the world of animals. And we all know that. Every culture, I don't care what culture it is, the taboos differ in different cultures, right? I mean, cannibals think it's okay to eat other people, but it's not okay to eat your family, right? There's a, there's a sense of morality within them. They know that there's, there are certain, they have an idea that there are certain things that are wrong, certain things that are right. And this is what is in the heart of every man. Because God has put it there. And we have to bank on that. We have to bank on that. And that is the point where the Holy Spirit comes in and begins to work. Confirming, you know, they, they begin agreeing with, you know what, you're right. Exactly right. I'm not a very moral person. I'm not a. I'm not a very good person. What am I going to do? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? And what is our response? 
gospel. It's the gospel. That's your hope. It's your hope. What's the what's the what's the the line I think it's from the song we sung last week? Um, Coming sinners, let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. It's not a matter of trying to get better, trying to do good, nothing. It's about the righteousness of God that comes to rescue you where you are. That is our message. That is our hope. That is the hope that we carry. And we go out there and we say, listen, don't trust in your goodness and your morality. Trust in Jesus and Him alone. Now, we're, we can see the light at the end of the proverbial tunnel in Romans chapter 2. Okay? So, uh, but there is light and it's the gospel coming. All right? So let's take a few moments and pray. And uh, so let's start with what are some things that are great, great.